Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. I really like what we're doing in this opening series of the summer, this inconceivable, this, this conversation about the all-important aspect of the kingdom of God, what it means, how it works, its power, how we experience it. And we're going to do this for the next several weeks through the parables that are uh, parables of the kingdom that are talked about in Matthew chapter 13. It's the only chapter we're going to look at for the next several weeks. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses these masterful stories and these examples from everyday life to demonstrate the secrets of his kingdom and the power his kingdom unleashes in the world and in human life. And he uses these stories in Matthew chapter 13 really to compel his listeners to make a decision about him, to continue to sort out where he fits in their hearts and in their lives. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 for a bit and uh, next several weeks. And I would encourage you to just read it a few times during the week just to sort of soak in it and begin to imagine the kingdom breaking out more fully in your life. At the risk of sounding like a sales pitch, I think this is a really important series for us, both as individual followers of Jesus and as a congregation. And here are a few reasons why. In addition to the many other roles Jesus fulfilled, he was a teacher. And so the things he talked about a lot were the things he thought were the most important. And the kingdom of God was his favorite subject. He talked about it all the time. The kingdom was really the overall theme and the overall subject behind all of his teaching. And so the kingdom is foundational to Jesus' reason for coming, for dying, for rising, for ascending, for sending his spirit, for commissioning his disciples, for establishing his church, and so on. We could go put it this way. The kingdom of God and its multitude and myriad of implications was in fact the good news Jesus proclaimed. We have some fence problems in our backyard among among many other expensive problems we have in our backyard but part of the fence has to be torn down and rebuilt and of course you know that I don't have a clue how to do this but I do know and this probably will sound impressive because I'm impressed by it I confirmed this with a brilliant contractor by the way a fence is only as good as its posts see huh? if the posts aren't set right if they're not aligned right, if they're not set in the ground deep enough, I'm preaching here. I'm sorry. Uh, if, if we'll get a bouncer to come and deal with you. Yeah. If they aren't plumb, as we say in the industry, right? <laughs> if the posts aren't right, then the fence will never be right. Failure may take a while, might look okay at first. But eventually the fence is going to fail, so the posts are the key to the fence. And I can't say this strongly enough. The kingdom of God and its broad sweeping implications in life, in the church, and in the world are the posts upon which everything else in the Christian experience depends. 
The kingdom is the key to our faith. If we don't get the kingdom, we're just haphazardly pounding boards on an unreliable frame. So this is a critical series. Because for a whole bunch of reasons we don't have time to explore right now, it is far more common for Christians to misunderstand the message of Jesus, shrink his gospel, misunderstand the kingdom of God, put the posts in wrong, if you will, than it is for Christians to understand his message and understand the kingdom. We build our faith, in other words, on improperly set posts And for our discipleship, for our ongoing spiritual formation, in the details of our soul, for our witness to the watching world, our worship, and for the overall thrust and purpose and mission and point of the church, the implications of distorting the message and misunderstanding the kingdom are catastrophic. And that is understating the point. And I have personal history with this, and so this is not just talking up here about some theory. I have personal history with this whole idea of being captivated by the kingdom of God. Eighteen years ago this month, in the June of the year 2000, I was in a seminary course, and the subject was the kingdom of God. And at the time I was in this course... I'd been a Christian for 17 years. I'd been sitting in churches for 36 years. I'd been a pastor for nine years. I had graduated with a Master's of Divinity degree from a world-class seminary in Illinois. Very impressive. I'm sure you're moved by that. And I'm telling you all of this because in spite of all of this, in spite of so many years as a Christian, so many times sitting in a church service, And so many years of graduate theological education and many years as working as a pastor, I sat in this seminary course in the summer of 2000 and heard about the kingdom of God and felt like I was being converted for the first time. And I will never forget how stunned I was to hear this professor unpack the meaning and the implications of the kingdom of God for me in my life, right then and there. And literally, I could feel and experience the joy coursing through my body as this gospel I thought I knew just blew wide open. I could feel this hope rising in me, this sense of overwhelming goodness overtaking me. After one session where the professor was talking, I charged up to him after the class, and I looked at him, and I kind of went like this. I said, I I have to tell you, this sounds too good to be true. And he said to me, it is very good, and it is very true. See, it was the good news my soul longed for, but had not yet heard, even after so many years immersed in the Christian subculture. And I've never been the same since. That experience started a process of drastically changing everything for me. Personally, vocationally, relationally, spiritually, theologically, my worldview, the role of the church in the world, approach to evangelism, the idea of mission, everything was touched by that reawakening and rediscovering of the gospel of the kingdom. 
This series is worth our time and our effort and our prayer and our reflection because there is transformational power in the kingdom of God and in the message, in the announcement of the availability of the kingdom of God. And my role today is to get us into this. And we're going to start actually at the end of Matthew chapter 13. And then throughout this series, we'll work through the various parables of Matthew chapter 13. And we got to hustle a little little bit. So some of this is going to go pretty fast. Let's start by talking about the good news of the kingdom. And both those concepts are crucially important. The good news of the kingdom of God. The good news is important and the kingdom of God is important. The word gospel means Good news. And the gospel according to Jesus in many places, we'll look at one in a moment. The gospel according to Jesus is this the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we don't live in the context of a monarchy. Britain's royalty is a fascination for millions, but it has zero bearing on what those millions do on Monday morning. So concepts of kingdoms and kings may not resonate with us right away. But think of the setting in which Jesus first announced this news. The people of Israel had long been waiting for a Messiah, a king. Their history was one of oppression at the hand of imperialist empires. And they were currently, at present, hostages of the Roman Empire. And Jesus shows up and he announces the kingdom of God has come. Recently I was listening to someone talk and teach on the kingdom of God and they noted how we tend to reduce Jesus' message to good advice about things like sin, forgiveness, death, and maybe morality. But good news, he suggested, is much different than good advice. Good news implies Something has happened and nothing will ever be the same again. I'm finally pregnant. That's usually good news. And everything from right then at that moment until forever will be different. I got the job. That's good news. Now we have to move to Fresno. That may not be such great news. But news is good. Because it reframes right now and tomorrow and the future and it reframes it toward goodness, toward what the Bible calls shalom. Now, not all of this goodness comes right away. It takes time to realize it and to realize all of the implications. But it is good news because something happened and things will never be the same again. The Old Testament does not actually use the phrase the kingdom of God, but the concept of God as king is a central theme throughout the Old Testament. We're going to fly over this really fast, but we see God as king, for example, over individuals like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joseph and David for sure. But God's intention right from the beginning was to be the king over the whole nation of Israel, to reign and rule over the whole nation of Israel So they would become a nation unlike any other nation on the planet. A nation where God himself reigned and ruled over them and led them into exquisite goodness in every way. This was God's intention. A flourishing nation to be a witness to the world and the world would be blessed because the world would see in Israel what actually happens when God is allowed to be king and the beauty 
and the goodness and the shalom would be irresistible for every other nation. But we know this. The ongoing Old Testament saga of the Jewish people was their rejection of God as king. So listen for the threads and the themes of the kingdom of God and God as king. And listen for the threads and the themes where the prophets are pointing toward an eventual king who will establish his reign forever. In Exodus chapter 40, the Israelites are out of their slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They have a long road in front of them. And on their way, they are on their way to shalom and goodness and flourishing. And God is there with them. He inhabits their community. And he does so through this tabernacle that was essentially a tent and God would fill the tabernacle and when they would move, he would move with them. They'd set the tabernacle up and he'd fill it again. So this is from Exodus 40. It's verses 34 through 38 at the very end of the book of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift... They did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. God was with them, but they eventually mess it up, and all sorts of chaos and all sorts of turmoil replace the goodness and replace the shalom. And then we come to what is an absolutely pivotal point in the story of Israel and in the story of God's kingship over Israel. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it's verses 4 through 9, and it's on the screen. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. Here's the key phrase. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They have rejected me as their king. I don't know if you saw that, but the, the language was, we want to be like every other nation on, on the earth. And the point was, you're not supposed to be like every other nation on the earth. So we continue. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Again, that phrase, they have rejected me as their king. The nation goes on and experiences more troubles and trials because they rejected God as their king. And there's this promise that overarches the whole narrative that one day God was going to send his Messiah who would be their king and would deliver them from their oppression. And their idea, the people's idea, was that the Messiah would be a king just like David was who would use his military might to defeat Israel's enemies and establish his reign forever. So then we... Come into Isaiah chapter 40. Just one example of the prophet calling out and reminding people of what God was planning on doing. And you'll hear remnants of 
John the Baptist in here, a voice, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Then over in Isaiah 52, starting in verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The Lord will lay bare his open arm and everyone will. We'll see it. Are you picking up where this is going? Gospel is the word used in Isaiah 40 and in Isaiah 52. Good news to be proclaimed. In John 1 verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling. Just like in Exodus 40. He tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We're back in Exodus 40, back in the tabernacle, God dwelling with his people again and showing them his glory. And we're again just skimming past this. Now we come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, to his unveiling to the world, his very first message, so it's probably an important one, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe The good news, it's as clear as day. The good news is that God has returned to his people to reign and rule over them as their king. So Jesus' message is that God's reign and God's rule is now present in and through the person of Jesus. In other words, the kingdom of God is explained, it is unpacked, it is fleshed out, it is revealed through the person and life of Jesus. A very smart guy named N.T. Wright puts it this way. The Gospels contain stories designed to break open the worldview of their hearers and to initiate a massive imaginative leap to which Jesus gave the name faith. The Gospels summoned their first readers to imagine a new state of affairs being launched into the world. A state of affairs for which the obvious Shorthand was the kingdom of God. I mean, this is like a really big deal. 
breaking open worldviews. Good news that initiates massive, imaginative leaps. Jesus proclaimed the gospel when he said these words, the kingdom of God is near. This is the good news he announced. Something has happened and nothing will ever be the same. Namely, the kingdom of God is now accessible and available to all people through Jesus. Rich, poor, old, young, sick, healthy, black, white, strong, weak, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all now have the opportunity to live under the good reign and the good rule and the good leadership of the God who created everything. So Jesus invited people to repent, turn away from life in their own kingdom, done their own way, under their own reign, and start living in God's kingdom, under his reign, and begin right now to experience the new life he gives. See, the reign of God is a present reality we can experience right now. He teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life as it is in heaven. Now, the kingdom doesn't come instantly in all of its fullness, but there is a present reality available now to all who want it. Your reign come. Your rule come. And I can't say this any simpler. This is the gospel. The Bible resounds with the good news that Israel's God is king over everything. And at long last, he's come to reign over individuals and over the world through the person of Jesus Christ. For thousands of years, the Jewish people looked for this and they longed for this. They waited for God to return and overpower the world's powers. They wanted to be delivered once and for all from oppression and evil and heartache and sin and wrongdoing and rebellion and despair. And finally, God came in Jesus. His feet brought the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe it. Step into this new arrangement of his good and powerful reign and rule over our lives and hearts and wills and minds and bodies and friendships and marriages and families and character flaws and heartaches and jobs and careers, and struggles, and sickness, and even death. Let God reign over every last square inch of it. And the resurrection of Jesus confirmed him as the king who can ask for such extreme allegiance. See, this is the good news. This is where if something at all in you starts burning and says, is that even possibly true? I would suggest that is the thing you were made for starting to rise up within you. The good news is that a new state of affairs has been launched into this world and everything is affected 
and nothing is ever the same. So there is not even a single pixel in your beautiful life that the good news excludes. The good news of the kingdom touches every single dot, pixel, atom of your life and heart and mind and body and soul and relationships and past and present and future. Every single bit of it can be brought in and under the good and powerful reign of our good and powerful king. And I'll say it again. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It won't happen instantly. It takes time. It's a journey. But something has happened. The kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God is now available and it is accessible right now in Jesus Christ and nothing will ever be the same again. So that's the good news of the kingdom. Let's talk about resisting the kingdom. As I mentioned, we begin this series at the end of the chapter we're considering, Matthew chapter 13. So I'd like to ask you to stand for the scripture reading. And this is the longest into any one service we've ever gone before the scripture reading has been read. So we're breaking a record here. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 51. Have you, is at the end of all these parables we're going to look at for the next month or so. Have you understand, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said, therefore, every teacher of the law who's become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Jesus makes a provocative statement in verse 57. It says they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet has honor except in his own town, and in his own home. They were offended by him. That needs to sink in. They were offended that this one they knew from a little kid would now be saying such things. I mean, they knew him. And now he's talking all big. So they were offended by him. And verse 57 says, So Jesus stood face to face with them and offended them some more. I doubt they threw a party for him or named a highway after him or put his name on a sign saying, Welcome to Nazareth, home of Jesus the Christ. He's indicting people who think they know him and know what he's about. See, he's familiar to them. They kind of have this whole thing figured out. So his words don't really get through to them. His teaching kind of bounces off their force field. They don't have ears that work anymore. They're still attached to the side of their heads. 
but they don't work. And so they're hearing him and they're smiling and they're nodding and they're yawning and they're hoping to get back to business as usual as soon as possible. See, they don't have the hunger. They don't have the urgency. They think they know him, but they don't know him at all. This is a sobering, sobering set of verses to think about. People who think they know are the ones at risk of not really knowing at all. I know this is heavy because it's heavy. And this is what Jesus does in these parables. He throws in these wedges to sort of divide and separate and expose and get people thinking at levels that are uncomfortable. And this is a real risk many of us face. An ongoing hazard of being a Christian in a comfortable culture is we think we know, but we are at risk of not really knowing at all. We are at risk of domesticating King Jesus. So he becomes about as impotent as British royalty. Nice, cute, maybe worthy now and then of a respectful head nod, but irrelevant to everyday life. We're at risk of thinking Jesus exists to do what we want him to do. We're at risk of taming the kingdom, toning it down just a bit, making it fit our agenda. Our self, in other words, resists the kingdom of God in millions of big and small ways. And many of us have been immersed in the Christian culture for a long, long time. So let's try this. We've been in the Christian culture for a long time. And a word like gospel immediately evokes some version of Jesus died on a cross to forgive me of my sins. Or we hear a phrase like the kingdom of God. And we think of a future up there in heaven with God someday. We think we know. But we've reduced the gospel Jesus proclaimed about the kingdom of God available and accessible right now into good news about sin and death and maybe some advice about upgraded morality. And the good news certainly includes this absolutely wondrous idea of forgiveness of all of our sins and this glorious hope of a future with God in eternity forever and this magnificent concept of our hearts and souls being reformed and good things coming out of who we are becoming but the kingdom and the gospel and the good news involves so much more see our understanding of the gospel is too small it's too narrow we resist the kingdom when we restrict its scope to the issues of sin and death. And it happens all the time. If you just say, well, what is the gospel? Immediately, people think, oh, forgiveness of sins. But if you say, what is the gospel? That's the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed that everything and everyone can now live under his good leadership and his good reign and nothing in them remains the same when that happens. So thirdly, 
Let's talk about imagining the kingdom. The good news is about experiencing the kingdom of God in real life right now. It is stepping into this new state of affairs the kingdom launches into our lives. The old, and whatever form the old takes for you, the old can now be gone. The old can be healed. The old can be transformed. The old can be restored. The old can be renewed. Your kingdom come in another aspect of my being and of my life as it is in heaven. Reign more over my will, over my thoughts, over my money, over my ambition, over the way I use power, over the, my sin, over my marriage, over my children, over my family, over the past and the pain it ignites in me, over the present trouble I'm in, over the character struggle I'm not having good success with, over my bitterness, over my unforgiveness. Your reign come and rule over these things in me. Imagine what would happen if the kingdom of God were to come more fully into some aspect of our lives. Think of the qualities of the kingdom of God, if you will, the signs of its presence. When the kingdom starts to break out, what actually happens? Here's a few things. Forgiveness of sins happens. This idea, this sense, this reality that we've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, forgiven of all of our sin. It's gone by the grace of God. And there's this literal freedom we begin to live with. Joy is a sign of the kingdom. This prevailing sense of well-being in our bodies, in any and all situations. Peace is a sign of the kingdom. Peace about the future, peace about the present, peace about who we are and who we aren't. Our identity as his child. And we find peace in that, our place in his world. One of the signs the kingdom is breaking out is baffling levels of forgiveness offered toward those who have hurt or disappointed us. We give the very thing We've received from God himself. Honesty and humility are a sign of his kingdom. Greater self-awareness. We know ourselves. We know our wounds. We know the depth of our pain. We know the games we try to play. We know the ways in which our kingdom is still running the show. We know the tricks we play. We know the way we hide from other people. Healing is a sign of the kingdom of God. You cannot read the Gospels without realizing when the kingdom breaks out, people are healed. The power of the kingdom to heal. Heal the past. Heal the deep wounds. Heal physical ailments people have. Shame is losing its grip when the kingdom is breaking out. When the kingdom is breaking out, we are learning how to respond with grace when we don't get what we want instead of responding with blame. And when the kingdom is breaking out, people are becoming increasingly aware of their missional calling in this world. And their job is this. But their sense of calling is this. And their job becomes the mission field they've been called to. But their calling is to embody the goodness of this good news wherever they are. 
Imagine an outbreak of the kingdom in some aspect of your life. Imagine if the kingdom of God expanded in you. What would happen if God reigned more over and you fill in the blank? And you began surrendering your kingdom and your will in you fill in the blank. What would happen there? How might God show up in ways we simply cannot imagine? We've talked about God's vision for Israel to be a nation where God was their king, to show the world what happens when God is allowed to be king. See, this is the role of the church in the world. And it's so very important to be a particular kind of people, what some have called a peculiar kind of people, a community that is enthralled with the kingdom of God and a community of people who are gradually orienting their lives and their relationships in and around the kingdom of God to show each other and to show the world what life can be like, what a community can be like, and what the world can be like when God is allowed to be king. So we come to the table to celebrate our king, to worship him, to adore him, and to remember his story. And the way it will work is ushers will come to the back of your sections in a moment and they will dismiss you out to your right, starting in the back row. You'll come down. There'll be people to serve you the bread and the cup. You can take both and either eat and drink right away or take them and continue back up the next row to your seats. We have prayer teams. If you're here today in need of healing of any sort, there'll be a prayer team back there. There's another one back there. I'd encourage you to go there and they will pray for you. Our communion liturgy prepares us to come to the table, and it is on the screen, and I encourage you to follow along. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and take a moment of quiet, of silence, to be present to the presence of the King.